0: I want you stand for the reading of God's word as we turn to Psalm 110. We're going to begin with a prophecy of Jesus' ascension. Let us give reverent attention to the very word of God as it has been given to us, that we may know that as I read and you hear, you are hearing the very voice of God to you at this moment. Verse uh, Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And with that, we read end our reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. And you may be seated. We are dealing in the uh, Heidelberg Catechism with the Apostles' Creed, and especially that section on Jesus Christ. We have dealt, first of all, with his humiliation. That is, his incarnation when he left the glories of heaven that were his, came, took on the form of a human being, lived among his creation who ultimately and consistently rejected him even though he was their maker and their king of his trials of his ministry of his cross and of his being in the grave for three days then it moves into his exaltation the second stage exaltation being the resurrection from the grave in order that all that he has done may have been given God's good housekeeping seal of approval, and that he could then go on and finish his ministry. For his ministry is not simply that which he did in his earthly ministry. It is a ministry that continues on forever, except now it's in a different form. And we took a look at the resurrection, and for 40 days how he proved himself to his disciples, he was, it was a true resurrection. He was there. He was real. And he spent 40 days teaching them, not only what the Old Testament said, but also looking partly into the future. I, those are 40 days I wish I had on video, that I could sit there and, and watch him and listen to him talk i wish i could have been with the people on the emmaus road walking down he said this is all that the old testament said about the messiah that would settle a whole lot of scholarly arguments of our day about what the old testament says well at least it should except for those who don't want to believe what jesus said so it's a great time and at the end then he ascended into heaven which we're going to take a look at today in the Catechism on Lord's Day 18, it deals with these questions 46 How do you understand the words he ascended into heaven? That Christ, in sight of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and in our behalf there continues until he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Is not then Christ with us even into the unto the end of the earth, as he promised? And the answer is, Christ is true man and true God. According to his human nature, he is now not upon earth, but according to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit. He is at no time absent from us. But are not in this way the two natures in Christ separated from one another? If the manhood he uh, be not wherever the Godhead is, Well, by no means, for since the Godhead is incomprehensible and everywhere present, it must follow that it is indeed beyond the bounds of the manhood which it has assumed. It is yet nonetheless in the same also and remains personally united to it. And question 49, what benefit do we receive from Christ's ascension into heaven? First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven, Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. And thirdly, that he sends us his spirit as an earnest or a guarantee, a down payment, by whose power we seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God, and not things on the earth." I'm beginning with Psalm 110, because to me, this is the prophecy of the Ascension. It's found in the first verse, and it's one that Jesus used in this last week. His detractors, they put him on trial, and they tried to entrap him with questions and tried to make him, uh, derail him from his ministry. And when they were finished and they couldn't say anything more, he said, i I got a question for you. Just one question. You can find this in Luke 20. When David talked about the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Was he talking about himself or someone else? And of course, you read it and say, well, he couldn't have been talking about himself because he was talking about Yahweh, the self-sufficient one, the personal name of God that... Uh, the Jews would have reverenced and they would have understood he's talking about the God of the universe, said to Adonai, master, sovereign one, the one who oversees all things, the one who is a controller of all things. says, Yahweh says to Adonai, and they're two different people than David. And in essence, what he was saying to his detractors was, that's pointing to me. One more opportunity he gave them to say, oh, that's who you are. Well, they were so upset that they did not discover it. That's the point. And this is one of those, I think, that, I, that Jesus used when he was walking with his two disciples on Emmaus, and he was saying, this is what's in the Old Testament. Yahweh has said to Adonai, come, sit at my right hand and make your enemies my, your enemies your footstool which means defeat your enemies do what you're supposed to do and in essence that's exactly the ministry that Jesus has right now all authority all rulership all control of all things has been put in his hands by the father until he finalizes the last of his enemies and then when he comes back, he takes, as, as Paul tells us in First Corinthians 15, he takes everything that he wins and he hands it to the father and says, Father, this is my Christmas gift to you. This is my gift. And the father goes, thank you, son. I love you for what you've done. You know, sometimes we get gifts. We look at and go, oh, good, another tie. Just what I wanted. <laughs> Oh, good, how am I going to use this? But there are also gifts that are so precious. We hang on to them almost for dear life, no matter how many moves or whatever we do. They're just that important to us. That's what it is. The meaning and the event of the the ascension is just as and maybe even more important than the cross and the resurrection. I say it that way because the cross is extremely important. There's our salvation. Where he takes upon himself our sins that they may be expiated and he takes upon himself the wrath of God that it may be propitiated and that is our forgiveness. The resurrection is important because death could not hold him and he came back and he fulfilled what the father had said and as I've said, It's basically the father sealing and saying, what you did, I accept. However, if he had not ascended, he'd still be walking around here on earth. And he may be in Israel, he may be in Rome, he may be in Europe, he may be in South America, but he can only, because he's a body, be one place at one time. And people may have to go flying or sailing or go to see him because he can only be in one place. But the ascension takes him out of one place one time and then makes it such that he can be with his people and he can do a ministry worldwide effect, universe wide. And that he can do because he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father and he has taken the place of a ruler. I do, and let me add one more thing, because with the ascension, we really do focus in upon Christ returning to heaven. But the passage goes on from there. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then here comes the point that I think people forget your people will freely offer themselves on the day of your power in holy garments. Yes, Christ rules, but he doesn't rule by himself. He rules through his people. They have been given holy garments because of his expiation and appropriation of his cross and the resurrection but they are called to do the work and the way in which he subdues his enemies is through his people. I mean, there are, there are individuals or there are even movements within the Christian church that seem to say, let go and let God. God will do it. Well, that's not what the scripture says. Yeah, God will do it, but he does it through his people. Why do we gather on Friday night? Because we're doing the most important ministry of the church, praying. It's more important, I think, than even worship, anything else, because you're calling down the blessing of the ascended Christ through your prayers. But you have to pray. That's part of the process. Well, couldn't God do it without me praying? Sure, but he has decided not to do it that way. It's teamwork. Christ has ascended. He is, he is giving his power to accomplish his task, but he has given his power to you and to me. And when we fail to exercise that, we fail the kingdom of God and his expansion. Does that mean Jesus is going to fail? No, no. It all goes according to his prayer. What it means is you miss out on a great blessing. You miss out on an opportunity to do something that will show glory and show how you treasure Christ as a great treasure of your life. That is, to me, the meaning of the ascension. Now, let's take a look at the ascension itself. And if you turn with me to Acts chapter 1, This is Luke's second description. He finishes his his gospel with a very short description of how they went out. And Jesus blessed the disciples and then he went up into heaven. And it says that the disciples went back to Jerusalem in joy. In joy? You've just lost your master. He's left you. He's gone away. You're on your own in an essence right now. And yet you go back in joy and you worship. Well, you'll see why they could do it exactly that way because I think they understood what was happening. Verse six, chapter one. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see the narrow focus of the disciples. They hadn't quite gotten the full picture. Forty days... Jesus has been teaching them the Old Testament. Forty days he has been explaining and getting him ready for his, his leaving. And they're still saying, are you gonna restore the, uh, the kingdom to Israel? Are we gonna be the great kingdom that David once had? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. Right there, any date setting should just go right out the window. When you hear someone say, Christ is coming on September 23rd, 1988. You you do what I did. Now, some of you weren't even born there. (laughs) You do what I do, go. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't you read your Bible? (laughs) Said, nobody knows. Not even the son, only the father, and he's not telling anybody. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things they were looking on, they, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. There is a human view of the ascension. Gives the final instructions, wait for the power on high, which he has already defined as the Holy Spirit, who he and the Father will give. And and again, at an unknown time. Now, maybe they could have figured out, uh, let's see, Pentecost is coming up, Pentecost is how God provides for us. Maybe it's gonna be in 10 days, but it could have been 10 years. They were called to wait until they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then he's lifted up into the clouds. When artists like to describe this or paint it, they usually have these nice cumulus clouds, a beautiful blue sky and these white clouds and Jesus going up in a white cloud. That's not the way the, Old, the New Testament or the Old Testament describes clouds. Cloud is a synonym for the Shekinah glory of God. When he went up, he went into the Shekinah glory of God. The same glory that was over the tabernacle, the same glory that was over the temple, the same glory that they saw in the Red Sea and the Jordan and all of that. It's the same glory. And Jesus goes in to the glory of God and from there disappears from their sight. But in disappearing from his sight, he went to a specific location Now, we don't know where that is. We know that Paul talks about three heavens. There's a heaven which is the firmament where the clouds are and the sky is. There's a heavens which is space and then there's a third heaven. And we have no idea where it is because the scripture doesn't tell us. Everything else is speculation and speculation is probably worth nothing, especially in this. But we do know this. When he went up, he went up in a physical body, a body that could eat, a body that walked, a body that people could touch and hold and see, a body that still had the scars from his cross upon it It's part of the evidence of who he was. It was not some kind of spirit, some ethereal. It's a spiritual body so that it could do what it did, but it was a body. And, you know, it may have been exactly the same type of body he had in the sense maybe he was five, six, and 140 pounds. It would have been the same. So when it went up, it didn't all of a sudden change. It went to a place. It's like what Jesus said to his disciples Believe in God, believe in me. I go to prepare a place for you. And that's not some kind of spiritual language that where I am, you may be, I will come back and bring you to that place. Or as one of the early contemporary music authors said, I think it was Keith Green, if he made this beautiful creation in six days and he's been working for 2,000 years, what a place it must be. The divine carpenter is doing his work. He's in a place, he's in a holy place, a place without sin, a place that is so beautiful that is, it, it staggers the imagination. When John would write about this place, the best he can say, it is like gold, it's like the greatest gems, it is like this, it is so wonderful, the light of God just in, 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 is, uh, is, is enlightening that whole place. Except for this, two scars, one on each wrist, one on the rib, one on the feet. The only thing that mars, heaven, are the scars of Jesus. And yet those scars are the most beautiful thing that any angel could look upon, as we're gonna see in a minute. Jesus is somewhere. His body is combined with his divinity and it's in a place. That brings the catechism to talk about two things we probably wouldn't bring up. But it was important for them for they were dealing with a church and a theology that wanted to deny the physicality and the time place of Jesus. They talked about the ubiquity of the body of Christ that because it was changed, it can be everywhere. In essence, it takes on divinity. And they were saying, no, could not be. Human body cannot take on divinity. And therefore, when Christ went up there, he did not lose his divinity. And when he promised to us twice, at least twice, Matthew 28, I will be with you to the end of the age, Or in John 14, where he said, I promise not to leave you as orphans. I will be with you. When he went up to, in his ascension, he didn't deny his promise. Yes, his human body is not with us, but yes, his divinity, divine person is with us. Why? Because he's omniscient. He's omnipresent. It's just like in his earthly ministry. As much as he was walking On the roads of Galilee and Judea and through Samaria, his divinity was upholding the universe. And the two of them worked together in concert. You can't separate those two, but you cannot confuse the two. And so it also goes on in a question, well, are not the two natures then separated? if the manhood is not wherever the godhood is. And he says, no, no, the divinity is incomprehensible. It has always been omnipresent. That's the same way when he goes up to heaven. Divine nature is never limited by his human nature, and his human nature never is absorbed into his divine nature. And therefore, he can be in one place, but at the same time, everywhere. And so, when you read question 49, which talks about three benefits that the ascension has for us, the second benefit is this, that our humanity is in heaven for us. That the true man and the true God, our humanity, though, yes, in a spiritual resurrection body, which had some differences from our physical body, imperishable, cannot uh, the imperishable cannot take on the imperishable. There has to be a change, first Corinthians fifteen. But we have a human being who is in heaven before the throne of grace for us, yet without sin. and therefore we have one who is our advocate, our intercessor. What happens? at the ascension is the son of God is restored to his previous glory is that not what he prayed for John 17 the father I have glorified you while I was on earth glorify me now in heaven back to the place where I was before that's a paraphrase that's a Gerhardt translation worth nothing but it's, it's a paraphrase to it And indeed, that's exactly what happens. But it is a greater glory than what he had before. Why? Scar here, scar there, scar here. And if I could bend down and touch my toes, scar down there. The glory is seen in heaven of the son who would give up of his glory in heaven to come and to be mistreated by his own creation, die in the place of God's people, raised from the dead, and to come back. And they, the angels and the heavenly beings, would praise him for those scars because that's greater glory than what he ever had before. It, is, it shows the essence of his ministry and of his work. You want a picture of that? Let me give you two pictures. The first one's in Revelation, 50, Revelation 5. Revelation 5, which is a mysterious book and yet in some ways a simple book. Revelation 5, is simp- Revelation is simply a book about the glory of Christ. It has nothing to do necessarily with end times and Apache helicopters and 666 over your forehead and things like that. Those are all symbols. What it does do, it shows the glory of Christ. Chapter one, you see the Trinity. Chapter two and three, you see Jesus in the midst of his congregations, knowing what they have done right, knowing what they do wrong, commending, condemning, and then telling them this is what you do to set yourself straight. That Christ in the middle of his congregations, those seven, they're not church ages. In the midst of those congregations, is defeating his enemies. Through the work of His people, then you get chapter four, which is a beautiful, glorious picture of of the throne of the Father. It's one that absolutely amazes and astounds you if you think about what it's saying. And then you get to Revelation five. I sat in the right. Hand, I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming. With a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. There you are in heaven. You have the history of the world in the hands of in that scroll. And before Christ appears, nobody can open it. It's like, will everything just kind of go kaput? Will God be thwarted because no one is able to open it? And John weeps at that vision. And then he says one of the elders said to me weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals the great lion if you know the Narnia tales you know Ashland the great lion are you a tame lion as Lucy said and he said no I am the lion. He roars and things change. Things happen. And that's a picture of Christ. He comes into the midst of heaven in his ascension. And all he has to do is roar and everything takes place. And so John turns around and looks and between the th- between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and when he had taken the scroll all heaven breaks loose in absolute praise It's a lamb who is a lion who is able to take the scroll and unravel it. The rest of the book is simply a pictorial, metaphorical way of showing Christ overcoming every enemy that is his. Fulfilling Psalm 110. But again, I want to show you how he does it. Chapter 12, Revelation. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. The accuser was not simply thrown down by the blood of the Lamb. It was the blood and the testimony. It was the prayers. It was the witness. It was the service. It was the work of God's people, along with the blood that defeated the enemies of the Lion of the Lamb. You see, even Revelation tells us Jesus doesn't do this alone. We are, he was the second Adam and we are the second Adam's offspring. The second Adam was given like the first Adam, authority over all creation. Take dominion. You are, in an essence, the under-shepherd of the great shepherd of creation. You name the animals. You do what needs to be done. You till the land. You make it fruitful. And his Adam, the first Adam's children were meant to help him in doing that. I mean, it wasn't like his children were going to sit in the Lazy Boy and watch cartoons every Saturday morning. They were meant to go out and help him in all of his work. The second Adam has a whole bunch of children who are meant to go out and do exactly the same thing. That's one picture. Then there's a second picture, Hebrews 9. And while we're turning, let me give you just a tiny bit of advice. If you want to know the Old Testament, read Hebrews. Study it. Because Hebrews tells you that Christ is the message of the Old Testament. And this is why he is. And this is how you are to read the Old Testament. And this is what you are to see in the Old Testament. The first part of chapter 9 is talking about the earthly priests and the way in which they sacrificed and came into the Holy of Holies with a sacrifice. And they did that once a year. And, and how the, that was the preliminary or at least the uh, foretaste of a full forgiveness of sins. And then it goes into how Christ himself, as a high priest, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons was the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The best that a high priest in the Old Testament could do was give a temporary reprieve. But when Christ offered himself through the power of the spirit on the cross, he gave an eternal redemption, eternal, not simply from here on, but from here back. Eternal is a whole idea that it's timeless, no beginning, no end. Eternal has the idea that before the foundation of the world, God in his mind had already rescued you. He already knew how he was going to do it. It just took some time before he actually accomplished it on the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and then applied it to your life. Whatever day, whatever time it may have been when he applied it, it was because it is eternal. You know, that in itself, when you think about it, ought to give you great assurance and comfort. Man, we watched this week as two people talked about a horrendous event that happened 30 some years ago. And you can see that it still bothers both of them very much. If you realize eternal redemption, you realize the things that you have done in the past, they're forgiven. They're covered over. They're taken away. Your problem is you've still got to deal with them, but they are not to be weights that hold you down. The sins that so easily entangle us, the writer of Hebrews says in the 12th chapter, they are gone They're covered, and that's the way you ought to see them. Part of the beauty of being 68 years old, part of the horrendousness of being 68 years old is you remember 68 years of life and the things you did. And it would drive me crazy, except for the fact there is an eternal redemption that has covered it all. And I can live in the freedom that yes, I've done things that are wrong, however, poof, they're covered. They're gone. I have to deal with it, but God doesn't deal with it at all. He already has dealt with it. He's done it once for all, the final sacrifices. (laughs) Read this week of uh, some people who are really getting excited because in Israel, a red heifer was born. And they say, a red heifer is a sign that we have to rebuild the temple and offer the sacrifices because you have to have a red heifer to do a proper sacrifice, especially to rededicate the temple. I'm going, ladies and gentlemen, have you not read your Bible? Did you not just read Hebrews 9? Christ has already taken away sacrifices. Why do we have to have sacrifices again? what a slap in the face of what Christ has done and what he's doing now to say something like that. And it should dampen any idea that there is that the temple has to rise again. Why? Look around. Y'all are the temple. Y'all. That's why the church comes into a building, not the people come into a church. You are the temple What's the benefit? And again, back to question 49: first benefit. Christ intercedes for his people. Romans 8:34, Hebrews 7:25. He was always interceding on behalf of his people. Do you realize that right now, Jesus is interceding for you? There you are thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? When's he going to be over so I can get a cup of coffee? And Jesus is going, would you listen? (laughs) He's interceding on your behalf. Not only that, but he intervenes on behalf of our interests as much as our supplication. There are things he does in your life you never thought about, but which he is accomplishing for you. Because it's for your good, it's for your growth, it's for his glory. And it shows how much he is a treasure. He can mold and strengthen and shape your life in such a way. And he's doing that right now. He's doing it as your high priest. He's doing it as the king of the universe who is unfolding the purpose and plan of his father. And that's not simply a general overall plan. It deals with every person on earth and especially every child of the living God. And so he will achieve his goal. The goal that they had from the foundation of the world when this father, son, and spirit, uh, let me say, negotiated, not in the sense that they had to give up anything, but when they talked about how they were going to create and what they were going to do. He is achieving the goal they set off way back then. And his ascension is getting him to the place of a new ministry where he could make it work. That's what he's doing. And how is he completing it? Well, again, he told him, the disciples, before he was ascended, stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. The spirit working in and through us helps us along with the blood of Christ to overcome every enemy not only our enemies but the enemies of christ in our day and age in our evangelicalism we are narcissistic we want to take a look at and say well christ is going to get rid of my enemies that's only half the equation and sometimes he doesn't get rid of all your enemies before you go home with him because it keeps you humble But he says, does say, I will use you to conquer every enemy of my Father. Be empowered by the Spirit in order to do that. That's what he wants. And finally, in this uh, section on the ascension, when you read Acts 1, it talks about one day he's going to return. And this is a teaser because that's next week's lesson. You're not going to talk about it now. No, I only have 30 seconds left. Let's take some implications. Because he's in heaven, Jesus is accessible to every person who calls on his name. When he was in, in his earthly ministry, only one place at one time, he can only deal with a woman at the Samaritan well, not with the Pharisees down in Jerusalem. He had to walk to get to Jerusalem. Now, anyone who calls on his name, he is available to deal and to help you. His ascension is also the ascension, the assurance of our final home, and our final home will be heaven with him. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come back and take you there it is also he is able to share with us in part of his authority and we have the great privilege of working for his ministry every day you wake up and you say i got work to do i got these activities every part of those are part of you sharing with christ his authority against his enemies personal and corporate, and that's how you live. You don't look at work as something, oh man, I gotta do, you look at work and say, in some way, I am helping Jesus overcome authority. When I do a job that is horrendous, that nobody else wants to do, but I do it with joy, I am showing who my savior is. When I worked at a summer camp, we had horses on the camp It was good until they left because somebody had to go out and shovel up the road apples. Guess who got picked? And I'd be out there shoveling it into the back of the truck in order to push it out. And then I'd go in for lunch and we had chili. (laughs) Not only was it difficult to eat, but it was difficult to go back. But you see, I joyfully did it and some of my co-workers went, how can you do that? It's, hey, it's fine. We gotta do it. That's how you demonstrate in a whole bunch of ways. John Bombero said this, when Christ the King ascends into the Holy of Holies, he dispenses the greatest gift that God can possibly give to humanity, which is, Himself. He is our treasure. And he is to be treasured. As the ascended king. Let's pray. Father thank you. For the revelation of your word. Thank you O Lord. That you are the ascended king. And you have made us your witnesses. By the blood of the cross. And by the testimony of your people. And that little by little. And in our small and maybe seemingly insignificant ways, we are helping you to defeat the enemy of yourself, of your glory, of your people, of your world. Help us to remember this, O Lord. Let the Holy Spirit take what has been said that is in accordance with your word and your will. Seal it into our hearts and mind. And Father, we ask that you would help us to go from here today throughout the weeks ahead to serve you, our high, great priest, ascended before the throne of grace. For we ask it in Christ's name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.